Hey guys, your host, Avery Carl with The Short-Term Shop here. Welcome to our 10-episode deep dive on the Sarasota and Bradenton area, which includes all those fun barrier islands like Anna Maria Island, Siesta Key, really the west coast of Florida. And if you guys are ready to start buying in this market, email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com and we will connect you with our expert agents in this market. I also wanted to let you know that we have some supplemental materials for you guys available on our website. It's theshorttermshop.com where you can go and you can set up a search and look at properties, see what the purchase prices are in this market currently. And you can save your search so that when a property that hits the market in your price range comes out, we can email you and then you'll know right away. We've also got the AirDNA data, thanks to our friends over at AirDNA, for this market for the past few years to help you gauge what a property should be able to do. We've got a pretty cool calculator on the website also to help you tie everything together. So lots of stuff to help you along your way while you're listening to this podcast or and or if you just want to hang out with us more, that's pretty cool because we want to hang out with you too. And there's one good place you can do that. It is our Facebook group, same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. It's just us and 60,000 of our closest friends hanging out, talking about short-term rentals, sharing best practices and all that stuff. So you can join that. Or if you guys really just want to talk to us directly, if you have questions about short-term rentals, we have an open office hours call every Thursday and you can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Now let's get to the episode. Hey guys, welcome to episode two of the short-term show special episode series on the West coast of Florida. We're calling it Bradenton, Sarasota, um, Anne Maria Island, uh, Siesta Key, lots of stuff right there. Lots of little towns. And uh, today we are talking about what to buy. So in our previous episode, we talked more about why anybody would want to buy in these areas. And today we're going to kind of break down the areas a little bit further, talk about what those types of properties are, condos, single families, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, five bedrooms, what, what works the best. So got the same crews yesterday. John and Christina are short-term rental experts in this market. How's it going today, guys? I'm doing fantastic. I am also doing fantastic. All right. Cool, cool. So guys, there there's a lot to sort out in this market. Lots of little communities within communities within communities almost of trying to figure out where allow short-term rentals and where does not allow them. So uh, today we're going to talk about what to buy. Previous episode, we talked about why, but today we're going to talk about what. So I'm going to kind of let you guys drive and I will ask questions in terms of different areas that you might suggest to people in terms of where they want to buy, what they want to buy, how close to water, what types of water. So whichever one of you wants to start, I will have lots of questions. So let's just go ahead. Sure, I'll start. Um, you know, one of the one of the first questions that a lot of our customers ask is, does a condo or is a single family home you know, a, a better choice in your market? Um, yesterday, we kind of talked about the different areas, the barrier islands of Siesta Key and Emria Island versus uh, the inland areas of Bradington or Sarasota. Um, generally speaking, condos only allow short-term rentals on the barrier islands. You know, a lot of people want a condo. They don't, they can't afford to be on the beach. Then, you know, that really leaves them with not much because off land or, you know, off the island, off the barrier islands, all of the condos have restrictions. So then that kind of narrows it down to single family. So traditionally, like that's what we, you know, try to sell and that's what makes the most money. So that's kind of where we're, 
we're looking and that's end up, you know, during the conversations and trying to figure this out, that's where we end up is with the single family houses. Okay. So typically the condos that allow short-term rentals are going to be on the barrier islands. So Siesta Key, Anna Maria Island, and you would probably need to be doing some other type of financing besides just conventional or investment uh, loan in order to to for those to cash flow really well, Correct. like you know, putting down more or paying cash or something like that. More of a lifestyle asset purchase, not impossible to make cash flow, but a little more difficult than some other types of properties. So, what other types of property? Well, the other type you already said, single family homes. So. Where and why are we looking at those single family homes? Um, so as far as where we're looking for single family homes that are just off the Barrier Islands, just over the bridge from the Mar- from the Barrier Islands on the mainland. So you're still close to the beach. Um, you know, we, we try to say that within a 15 minute drive to the beach is, you know, still reasonable. So even though you're not even really, you know, you're 15 minutes from the beach. We find that a lot of people, you know, they're coming with the larger parties, specifically in the larger houses. Not all of them are beach people. And so I feel like sometimes it's also a happy compromise between parties. We want to be at the pool all day. You guys go to the beach. We're going to hang out at the pool. And we see this a lot, not just in Manatee and Sarasota counties, but also Pinellas. So even there, we're kind of saying like across the bridge from the beaches. So it's much different than the, the Florida markets that I'm used to investing in. So 15 minute drive to the beach is fine. So I assume you guys have like at the beaches there, the public beaches, there's decent public parking. Some of the beaches, yes. Some of the beaches, no. <laughs> um, you know, in some places on Enemy Island, it can be very challenging. There's no public parking lots. There's some street parking, uh, but it's very limited and, you know, enforced. Um, other places, you know, there's there's more uh, of a bigger parking area, um, but, you know, during peak season, you definitely have to get there early um, in order to find a good spot, parking spot as well. Yeah, we've even had some of our, you know, people that stay in our short-term rentals will even Uber to the beach, which we always thought was odd, but we're like, okay, that makes sense. Like they're literally getting dropped off right at the parking lot. They're not lugging all of their stuff. So we see a lot of people that do that and just Uber. Okay, awesome. So you want to be within 15 minutes of the beaches. Uh, What about, so you guys have like a lot of channels and stuff around there with boat slips and things. Is there any benefit to being on or near one of those or like any other type of water other than the Gulf itself, like bay, channels, anything like that? From a rental perspective, no. Um, we don't see those properties dry a high, higher revenue. Um, they obviously cost more, um, so they'll appreciate more. But from a rental perspective, you, you don't drive a higher revenue. Um, there's pros and cons to those types of properties, to properties on a canal. You know, sure, it appeals to the person who brings a boat, but it also doesn't appeal to, you know, the mother of three children who has to make sure that her kids don't fall, you know, off the seawall into the water. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Um, So, you you know, we have, you know, the majority of our clientele is family, you know, that that's the vast majority of it. So while there is an appeal to a certain group, you know, being on the water and having that seawall, having that waterfront property, um, the cost of it. Um, doesn't really justify the return. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned pools. So this being Florida and really warm most of the year, is a pool a necessity? And we don't have to get into necessarily the income of that yet because we'll do that in another episode. But how necessary is it to buy a property that has a pool or the ability to add a pool? So whether you buy a property with a pool or you add a pool, 
um, a pool is critical. Um, you know, without a pool, you may be able to rent for the peak seasons of February, March, and April, but the rest of the year, you're really going to struggle. Um, you know, in the summer months, you know, again, like Christina said, some people don't like going to the beach and they'll just stay home at the pool. So, you know, a pool is very, very important. Um, aside from location, you know, the outdoor space in our market is probably one of the most important things. So having not just an okay pool, you know, not just an okay, you know, hole in the ground with water in it and having a really nice backyard that's really appealing and stands out, you know, above other properties is really, you know, the properties that do well. Um, the outdoor space is very, very important, you know, almost more so than the inside. I mean, that's why people are coming to Florida. They're coming to Florida to be outside, not to be, you know, cramped up in the house. Um, even though, you know, it's nice to have a nice kitchen and nice bathrooms. Um, they probably, you know, have that at their home, wherever they're coming from. It's the outdoor space and uh, the outdoor environment that they're really coming to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. If you're in Florida, you need to have a pool, if not at least, at the very least, a community pool. Um, I know here, at, when I'm on vacation, if I've got a pool, it's really nice because my kids are still at the age where they take naps. So they can be inside taking a nap. I've got my baby monitor and I can chill at the pool and still be outside and not not cooped up feeling. So I know there's a lot of other moms who feel the same way about that. So um, big fan of pools. And you can, in my opinion, at least in my experience, and maybe you guys have a different experience, it's actually much more cost effective to buy a property that doesn't have a pool if you can find one and add that pool than buying one that already has a pool because it's going to be $300,000 more for a property that has a pool. And it's really, depending on where you are, I just got a pool quote for about 80000 So 80000 is significantly less than three hundred. So you may be able to keep your cash on cash return a little bit higher there by doing that. But how how common is that to see a property without a pool? Is this like everything around here has pools like in Palm Springs or not so much? You're spot on with that approach. You know, that there's a lot more inventory at a lot better price point that doesn't have a pool. Um, you know, the ones with the pools are the ones that are going for the premiums. You know, people want the turnkey aspect of it. They don't want to wait the four or six months to build the pool. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, like you're saying, to buy something without a pool and build a pool that also allows you to build not just a basic pool, but, you know, a pool that's going to really appeal to, you know, the travelers and your clientele and really give you that extra bang for the buck. You know, you spend an extra 10, 20 grand when you're building a pool to build something that's, you know, really pretty awesome. And you'll you'll see those returns quickly. And I feel like also the houses with the pools that do already, you know, have already short-term rental or even not, but have the amazing pool. Those are going so quick. We're still seeing multiple offers on those houses. And so leverage-wise, like finding something that doesn't have a pool that you can build one, you're more apt to be able to get that house under contract and buy it versus one that's going multiple offers. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And especially with interest rates being high, any way you can find something that doesn't have the value already, but you can add it is always you know a good way to go. Even even in low interest rate times, any value add, I think, is is a good thing to be able to go for. I was going to say, I feel like John is um, very well versed in building pools. We've uh, built two and we're getting ready to build our thirds. <laughs> but John has lots of, of contacts and that's kind of been, you know, our way to obtain houses was try to find something that doesn't have a pool where we can put one in. Nice. That's, I think that's absolutely the way to go. I've got one in Cape Sandblast that I've been, haven't gotten around to putting the pool in yet. We've had it for two and a half years and it's permitted, but I haven't gotten around to doing it just because there's really, it, 
there's not a lot of contractors around there, but I assume you guys being in more of a metro area, there's it's a lot easier to find those types of contractors than in more remote areas like that. Yeah, there's there's plenty of builders around. Awesome. So I'm going to change the subject really quick. And without getting into specific price points, because those can change often. And if somebody wants to listen to this next year, I still want it to be relevant. Are there different areas different sub-markets of your markets that might be more affordable or markets that might be more expensive, but you'll typically see a higher return because maybe it's more of a desirable area. Can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. Um, you know, to, to start out on that that topic, I mean, you know, STRs that are going to be on the Bear Islands, Anna Maria, Siesta Key, you know, they'll probably generate about 25% more revenue than a property just over the bridge um, on the mainland but they're probably going to cost about three to four times as much. So acquisition costs, taxes, insurance are going to be, you know, multiple times higher than it would be to purchase, you know, a similar comparable home just on the mainland. And again, your revenue is only going to be about 25% higher. So from an investor standpoint, purchasing something just, just on the mainland um, or, you know, within 15 minutes, like we said, is, is a lot more, uh, a lot better investment. Um, as far as locations and prices, when you're talking on the mainland, I mean, on the Bear Islands, you know, that they're all very expensive. And when I say very expensive, I think average home price in Siesta is like 1.4 million. Average home price on Lido is about 1.9, um, you know, but very expensive. Whereas you get into uh, the Bradington market or even the Sarasota market and you could find a nice four bedroom house, you know, for, for around the 700 range. Um, Sarasota is a little bit more expensive than Bradenton. Um, you know, Sarasota is a little bit bigger city. It's a more, uh, what would you say, Christine? More affluent in a way. Yeah. And more affluent city. Sure. More known, Um, you know, I think it's more known than the Bradenton market. Sure. And when you move up north to Pinellas County, um, and some of those lesser known areas, you know, between Clearwater and St. Pete, uh, the areas of like unincorporated Pinellas County and Largo. Um, some of those areas are able to, you're able to get a home at a slightly lesser rate than you would in Bradenton or Sarasota, but the returns are still very strong. So we're seeing a lot of opportunities in those markets there. Okay. What about unincorporated Seminole? Yes. Yesterday I mentioned Seminole when I should have said unincorporated Seminole. So there, there is a difference. Unincorporated Seminole does allow short-term rentals, whereas the, the city of Seminoles, the straight city of Seminole does not. So again, in that in that area, um, it's close to the beach. Um, there are some regulations, but you know, very minimal. Um, it's very desirable because of its location to the beach and to you know other things like we talked about yesterday, um, the arts, downtown areas, restaurants, and stuff like that. Um, but there are very you know very strong returns in those markets. Are there any little pocket areas of these submarkets that might be uh, like in a more expensive area, but are little pockets where like, hey, you're walkable to the really expensive area, but you can actually get these houses for much cheaper. We have a few of those in this market. So that's kind of why, why I'm asking. And I hope that that makes sense. Am I making any kind of sense? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, not really... Yeah. Not really too many, you know, like that around here. Um, yeah, you guys are pretty, pretty well developed down there. So yeah, it's it's pretty well developed, pretty built out, and you know, pretty straightforward. So uh do you guys have any favorites in terms of areas to like if I'm if I'm a buyer 
looking for a single family in that market, what are your favorite areas in terms of, you know, being able to A, get a permit or, you know, not have restrictions that are 30 nights or over, or B, um, just areas that maybe aren't as well known or present a lot of opportunity? Um, I go back to Bradington, like we talked about yesterday, you know, specifically zip codes like 34209, 34210, you have no restrictions, um, you know, at all, no need to register aside from, you know, you're registering with the state. Um, they do ask that you pay your taxes, but beyond that, um, there's no permit, there's no you know license, there's nothing uh, locally um, that regulates you, and the returns are very very strong. All right, cool. And is there a specific size that works better or worse in any of these areas? So my assumption is that with the condos out on the the keys, that probably those one maybe two bedrooms have the highest occupancy rates, but maybe the the higher occupancy single families are going to overall have a higher return. What are you guys seeing in the different markets? That's, that's correct. You know, uh, the general rule of bigger is better does apply here. Um, you know, you want to target something that's at least a three bedroom or larger. Um, when we're talking single family homes, you know, two bedroom single family homes, there's just so many of them and you can't get a high enough, you know, ADR to really uh, justify it. It's more of a break even point. You know, once you get to the three bedroom part, um, you can do pretty well if you're a high performing three bedroom. But where the revenue really jumped is when you go from three bedroom to four bedroom. And on average, you know, as you go up in bedroom count, revenue jumps about 30 to 40 percent. So which, which each, each bedroom you add, revenue jumps 30 to 40 percent. And in some cases, in some markets, it's you know almost close to 100 percent. It almost doubles. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we're always trying to look for is larger three bedroom homes. So three bedroom homes with a den, three bedroom homes with an office, you know, to where we could purchase them at a three bedroom price point, turn them into a four bedroom and get four bedroom revenue. That's kind of like, you know, the, the sweet spot right there. Um, not always, you know, uh, not always possible, you know, not always on the market, but when those do, those opportunities do come up, those are, you know, they're the really good ones to jump on. And we're just kind of looking at square footage too, because, you know, we're looking every day at MLS and when we look, we'll say, oh, this one's a three twos, but we're checking it out and it's like, it's 2,200 square foot. Like, let's go look and see what the configuration is. And we've had a lot of clients buy those three bedroom houses and, you know, have a contractor knock down a wall, make a fourth bedroom. So super important to work with somebody like us who knows, you know, to look for those things. Um, I also... You, know, you always hear that the mac the market is saturated that it's really bed bedroom counts that are saturated and we do see that here you know in the two bedrooms the three bedrooms and so if you are able to get the four bedroom and the five bedroom you're definitely going to do much better okay that makes sense and and we see that in other markets too is there such a thing as too big like a bedroom count where you start to see diminishing returns like eight bedrooms um, or 10 bedrooms. I don't know. I guess it just depends on the market. But do you see anything that's like, oh, you don't really need to go that big? No. <laughs> and also, you know, we always kind of laugh because we feel like the Orlando market, every bedroom there we feel like needs to be eight bedrooms. And here we don't have tons of that. You know, yes, we, we do have them. Some of them are on the island, but then you still have an occupancy cap. Um, oh, but that. off the island... I, you know, I, I would picture that it would have great revenue. And John could probably speak more about the revenue portion of that. Yeah, the occupancy yeah. cap is a is a good part or point, um, particularly in areas that do have that. Um, you know, if if you're have a three bedroom but you can only sleep 
eight people because of your occupancy cap, you know, you're you're just completely not able to compete with, you know, that home that just has that that a little extra space there. Um, as far as going back to the larger houses, um, there's just not not very many large houses. Um, you know, when you get above a five bedroom, I mean, the number of houses out there, it, you can probably count on both hands. So, you know, they are very desirable and they all perform very well, particularly when they're uh, they have a good design and a great outdoor area. Okay. So I guess what you're saying here is the four to five bedroom model or the three bedroom where you can add a fourth bedroom for the, a three bedroom price. There's no reason to stray from that. We know it works. We don't have to just go out and buy the biggest property ever just to tell all our friends we bought the biggest property ever in the Bradenton market. Just stick to what works is what I hear here. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything that across the board just does not work in terms of types of properties or style of properties to buy here? Um, you want a, you want a concrete block home. You don't want a wood frame home. You know your insurance is going to be through the roof. Maintenance is through the roof. Um, concrete block is you know is a must. Um, the other thing that we kind of touched on yesterday is HOAs. You know in this market you definitely don't want a mandatory HOA. Um, they either do not allow short term rentals at all. Or there's always a chance that they could stop allowing short-term rentals in the future. So we we always steer people away from mandatory HOAs. Um, homes in this market are not going to be newer homes. You know, I know when you guys are talking about some of the mark the mountain markets, um, if it's not built in 2000 or newer, you know, it's something to potentially be concerned about. Here, you know, the majority of homes that were we're targeting are built in 1990 or earlier. A lot of them built in the 70s. I own two houses that are built in the 50s, personally. Oh wow! Um, big. The reason for that, uh, generally speaking, is that you know in the 90s that's when they started building you know the plan development communities, and all those plan development communities are the ones that have the HOAs uh, for the most part. You know there are exceptions, um, but you know we just try to help people understand that you know you're probably not going to be buying a brand new home. And if you are, it's going to be, you know, quite expensive and not the best cash flowing asset that you could purchase. I think that's a really important distinction to make because that can be really different across different markets. So like your example of a mountain market, a lot of times those 90s builds that are all really dark and the inside feels like you're in a pine box and they're all shaped exactly the same. Um, that might be something that you want to steer clear of and buy something a little newer with a little more personality. But here they're just so much more expensive that it it doesn't really make a lot of sense is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, the house I'm sitting in right now was built in 53. The house Christine is sitting in is built in 1950. So, um, you know, there's things to check and, you know, uh, understand, you know, the plumbing, the electrical and all that when you're doing your due diligence um, to make sure that those aren't going to be problems. But don't be afraid of older homes is kind of what my point. Gotcha. All right. As long as you update them, make them cute, make them look how they need to look in the pictures in order to, you know, get those clicks and get those bookings, then you're good. I want to jump back to that three bedroom converting to a four bedroom thing real quick. So yep. if, if we're somebody who is looking to do that, what, how difficult is it to get a permit for that fourth bedroom and, and make sure that that's all kosher so that maybe, you know, one day down the road, if you want to sell it, it's permitted and you can call it a four bedroom and get a four bedroom price. It's, it's not difficult at all. I mean, you just need to find a licensed contractor, get the plans drawn up. Um, the city is not going to tell you no. 
Um, it's just, part, you know, it's just a process. Gotcha. And you, of course, want to make sure that if you're planning to do that, that you're calling the city, talking to them about that, making sure you're doing all that due diligence before you close and making sure that that this is something you're going to be allowed to do. So, um, but sounds like it's a pretty, pretty commonly used strategy and it's not really something you have to worry too much about. But as with anything, do your due diligence before you close on anything. Absolutely. All right. So I think that is all of my questions, I guess. Well, let's not deep dive into this because, again, we've got another episode where, where we'll cover it in depth. But is there a difference in terms of being on the barrier islands or closer to the water or in different areas of your market, different submarkets of your market in terms of insurance costs? Like, is there an area that if people are like, okay, I'm real tight on money. I don't, I can't be having like the highest in insurance costs possible. What can we do? Where can we buy to kind of minimize that? Or what, uh, what year should it have been built in newer to minimize insurance costs? Sure. Um, insurance on the Barrier Islands is by far going to be the most expensive. You know, you're definitely uh, the most risk in the eyes of the insurance company. You're in a flood zone. Um, so insurance on the islands is going to be, you know, by, by far the most expensive. Um, once you cross that bridge and you come over to the mainland, um, the place is very close to the shore, will most likely be in a flood zone. So that's going to uh, definitely affect you know, your overall insurance costs. You'll have to have homeowner's insurance in addition to regular flood insurance. Um, elevations change quickly. You know, I think what's the, the base flood, uh, the base flood elevation, I think is like 13 X. feet. Oh, I thought, never mind. I'm wrong. Right. But, but, but from, but to be an X, I think you have to be at 13 feet above, uh, above shore, um, sea level. I, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't quote that because maybe that's not 100% correct. <laughs> look it up, guys. There is, there is a certain number of feet. Just Google it. We'll put it look, in the show notes. <laughs> look it up. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, you know, once you're out of the flood zone and obviously you don't have to have flood insurance. Um, that could change with citizens' new policy that they're coming out with if you do have to go with citizens' insurance, but we can touch more on the insurance part, obviously, in the other episode. Um, but generally speaking, you know, if you have a concrete block home, um, if you have a roof that's in good condition, um, the shape of the roof uh, greatly affects your inf insurance rates. If you have a hip-shaped roof, you know, your insurance could be 30% less than, you know, with other shape roofs. A what um, shape roof? A hip-shaped roof. What does so that mean? A hip-shaped roof is a roof that come that comes downward on all sides. So it's kind of like a pyramid. Oh, okay. So sometimes you'll see where there's a hip roof at the beginning, and then at the back it's like a flat roof, right, John? And so yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to a, steer clear of that. And, and none of them necessarily deal breakers. It's just you know, with with a hip-shaped roof, you know, you're, you're definitely going to get a better rate than you would with other shape roofs. Oh, um, good to know. The age of the roof is obviously very important down here in Florida these days with insurance rates. Um, but, you know, obviously a roof can be replaced. So if you can get a property at the right price and budget for the roof replacement, um, you know, again, again, it's something to consider when running your numbers, but I wouldn't say it's a deal breaker. Yeah, and you can get, if you get under contract and find that a roof is kind of old, the way things are right now with it being turning to be more of a buyer's market than a seller's market, you can typically get, not all the time, so if you do this, don't come at me, but um, sellers to contribute towards a new roof or maybe replace a new roof even, depending on how much they need to sell before you close. So you can actually get it to where it's not even necessarily your expense during the negotiations uh, if everything falls into place correctly. 
Yeah, I've had a number of sales, you know, in the last couple of months where the, the seller has replaced the roof, um, you know, prior to closing or contributed, you know, to to the cost of replacing the roof as a credit at closing. So that's 100% correct. You know, it's it's definitely a negotiating point in this market. One other comment with regards to the roof um, is that the roof to wall attachment is very important here. Um, and what that means is, you know, how well is the roof secured to the actual, you know, concrete block wall? Back in the day, uh, two nails attaching those those roof rafters to the wall was pretty common. Um, but today, insurance companies want to see a third nail, which is equivalent to clips. And to put that into perspective, I have a client who just bought a house who only has the two nails as the house is currently built. His insurance quote was $16,000 with those two nails. If he added the third nail, which would cost him $950 to do, his insurance would go from $16,000 to $6,000. Oh, wow. So if he invests a one-time fee of 950 bucks, he'll save 10 grand a year. My goodness. These are important things to know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, you know, everybody, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of concern about, you know, insurance, you know, in Florida these days, but there are specific things to look for and to know how to navigate um, that can really, you know, make make that insurance rate, uh, while still expensive, you know, a lot more affordable. Really, really, really good tip there. So is there anything else that you think the listeners need to know about the different flood zones? Do y'all have Cobra zones there? No. What's okay. that? Um, it's areas, there's one up here in Destin. There's a lot of them actually in the Gulf Shores area. And it's areas where you can't really get conventional marketplace insurance. You have to get special government flood insurance. Um, but like I said, we only have one little area here and it's not terribly common, but if it's not common there, you would know, um, mm -hmm. yeah, if it's not terribly common there, but anything else that you need to know or that I need to know, or listeners need to know about flood zones in y'all's market. I would just say like, do your due diligence, you know, during your due diligence period, you know, I just think sometimes people will say, oh, we'll worry about the insurance when, you know, once we're closer to close. No, <laughs> figure that out in your due diligence period. Um, yeah. And, you know, we have contacts here and insurance and recommend some people. So that would be my biggest tip. Uh, yeah. A lot of insurance companies won't be able to, you know, bind the policy or give you a 100% um, definitive quote without your four-point inspection and wood mitigation. But that's not a reason to not start the conversation, you know, right when you go under contract. Let, you know, reach out to your insurance agent and, you know, have them confirm you're not in a flood zone. Have them confirm that there's not something that you're uh, missing um, that, you know, could significantly impact your insurance rates. That way, when you do get everything, um, you know, it's in line with what you expected. All right. Yeah, I think that's very, very good advice. Everything, do everything under your due diligence period. Don't ever say, oh, I'll deal with that after closing, because the last thing you want is a surprise after you've closed. So really great advice there. Uh, I think that that's a good a good note to close on. Anything else that you guys feel like we missed or should have mentioned about different areas to buy and um, what to buy in this market? I think we covered, I think we covered the majority of it. Christina, any thoughts? No, I think the one thing, you know, we keep saying like Anna Marie Island and Siesta Key, like the cash flow isn't there, but those we feel like are definitely like lifestyle markets. And we kind of went into that yesterday. So we don't want to tear people from that. Um, you know, it's, in our first conversations with our clients, we always ask like what their goals are, what they're looking for, and what their expectations are. And so, you know, that's usually how the conversation goes. Obviously, lifestyle choices and, you know, markets are different. And, you know, we're obviously willing to work with people and still try to find them the best ROI. Absolutely. 
So guys, if you want to learn more about this market, there's a few ways you can do that. You can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com. We'll get you connected with John and Christina directly. You can also join our Facebook group. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, same title as my book. Or we have a live Q&A every Thursday that you can sign on to. You can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Thanks, guys. 